Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Politics of Living. I'm your host, Vicki Mizone. Today's show is all about the holidays, tradition versus non-tradition, food and families, and more. Tavi Fashi Drake features stories about holiday traditions, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, Krampus, and more. On the she Solution, Kristen Thiel explores the history behind the song Santa Baby. Darka Dusty returns with a wonderful story about borscht in the Ukrainian holiday tradition. And I delve into the 12 days of Christmas, Boxing Day, and other traditions with my British friend Meg Cowie. First up on the politics of living, Rochelle Schmid, one of our contributors from the summertime, is back with another family conversation. This time it's with her sister Lori and nephew Jonas Michael. The three of them have a candid discussion of their large extended family, traditions that they've adopted, and traditions that they do not follow anymore. My name is Rochelle. I am here with my sister. My name is Lori. And my nephew. My name is Jonah. Jonah Michael. Yeah, Jonah Michael. Lori and I were raised in a relatively conservative religious household. So there are certain traditions we chose to continue and quite a few we chose to not continue because we're not very religious, unlike many of our other family members. Well, it's one of those things where as we've gotten older, the values that we hold, especially in this time period, just don't, the values of certain religious groups do not match my values and they don't fit how I live my life and how I see others. And there's just some that, culturally speaking, I don't adopt, that I'm not okay with, that my family continues. I know one in particular I have very strong feelings about would be things that they put in jello that should not be put in jello. Yeah, yeah, food. We, we, we have strong opinions no. about food. No, 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 no. Food of any kind does not belong in jello. If it is peas, meat, vegetables of any kind is not jello. No, that's not that's not a thing. It's not jello. Jello that comes from the little packets of jello that you J-jello you mix yes. with the hot water and and you put into a mold and you don't put anything else in it. I make the allowance for some people prefer to put fruit in there like pineapples or whatever and they'll put cool whip on top. Fine. I don't think that's necessary, but that's acceptable. You put other things. That is wrong. It's wrong in multiple and many ways. There are family things that we continue, that we embrace, that are good, and that, you know, are good food. I think that's a big aspect of it, is whether or not it tastes good. That's one of those things that we talk about each year. We, we do a little vote on it. Sort of like my cooking. It took me a long time to be a good cook. Mm-hmm. My, my poor family. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. It, it took a while. A, a lot of trial and error. And and, we, and I asked for their honest opinion. Did you like this? If you did like it, how often would you like to see this return? Once a week? Once a month? How about never? How how about never? Usually never. Yeah, I eventually it got better. There, there are some things you allow now. And, and sometimes you just get sick of something. Oh, we've had this way too often. That, that that's, mm-hmm. that's a no. There's other things that, you know, do we want to do Taco Tuesdays? I don't know who's cooking it. <laughs> and, and it's just one of those things. And we do the same with traditions. Why did we do this? Do we want to keep doing this? Are we looking forward to it? Are we dreading it? And to have honest conversations and say, if this is something we want to continue, we need to do it in a way that suits us. The family tradition, our family, of doing a nativity 
where and it is a pageant more than a nativity the elaborate costumes and all of that um elaborate costumes it's a towel wrapped around your head that's not an elaborate costume. well no no no. remember the halo things oh. and and the saddle and and the set pieces as if they're doing community theater and yeah so it, it's something that i know many family members still continue to do and they enjoy i personally don't enjoy it not just because it's really people over there i mean granted there are a lot of people 30 or more people in a regular ranch-style three-bedroom house in the suburbs. 30 people or more in there. And you're all reading a script you just tried memorizing and couldn't, so you're reading off the paper you were just handed to by your grandmother. And everyone has a part, even parts you're thinking, oh, villager number three. No, everyone has a speaking part, and everyone has to sing, whether they're good at it or not. Or if you're the donkey, you have to say nay. I choose not to. I, I know Lori has chosen not to as well. Um, she's given her kids a choice. They, they, they can, I'll drive them there. They could drive themselves there, however they want, but I will not be going inside. That That's just, that's a no for me. And I will no longer be the donkey. Are other members of my family going to join the menorah lighting? No, because for some of them, that's not part of their historical, cultural background. It's not something they even enjoy. For others, they're in on it. <laughs> and then there's, you know, how about that winter solstice? Who's going to the winter solstice party? Who's, you know, wh what are we bringing? What are we, and, and all the different various amounts of religious and non-religious background in our family and appreciating that you don't have to keep the same traditions. You can pick and choose. You can say, this no longer serves me. You can say, you know, this other family does this. And that sounds like a lot of fun. I, I want to do that too. That, that sounds great as you get to know more people you can learn new things and to be open to that and to say what are your traditions what are the things that you do that bring happiness to you and those around you and what are the things where you say you know what we are not doing that anymore that was that was awful for example I no longer put lights on the outside of my house we're a little bit allergic to being cold we do not want to pay deductibles and co-pays for the times where we will get injured doing this. We decided, no, let's put the lights inside. Let's put the lights inside for us to enjoy it where we're warm and dry. There's food and, and warm beverages. And comfy seats and, and, and so on, right? And if we want to look at light displays, there are places where you can go do that. Yeah. There's communities that they enjoy going outside and decorating the outside of their houses. You can go up and down those streets and look at beautiful light displays. We have in years past gone to, you know, things like the zoo lights and Peacock and Peacock, Lane. Yeah, you know, which for the amount that you're outside being cold and enjoying other people's light displays is still not as long as it would have taken you to put up your own. True. Very true. And, and mine would not have looked anywhere near as nice as what they do. No. Traditions are meant to be happy, not meant to be sad. If it's a tradition that's sad, then why is it a tradition in the first place? Yeah. And, and you know, it's okay to ask why. Why yeah. do we do this? It's, I think, a good thing to question your traditions that, you know, some are very good and make you happy. But even then, it's still good to wonder about the origins of it and, mm -hmm. and ask yourself, why are we doing this? Maybe you'll actually appreciate it more if you do. If it's something that you're just kind of meh about, look into it more. Maybe you'll appreciate it more. Maybe you'll decide because of the origins that maybe you don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, or put a twist on it to make it something that suits you more. For example, one of our traditions, uh, we in my house we celebrate Hanukkah and Christmas and winter solstice. We celebrate winter holidays. One of the traditions we do is pajamas the night before Christmas. 
but we do it with our, our own special twist. We have matching pajama bottoms for everyone, where they're the lounge pants with big pockets, because we like pockets. Yes. But then we have graphic printed tees that, you know, the t-shirts that have things that suit our personality, things that make sense to us. For example, one that I'm having for myself this year is a mixture of Star Wars Ewoks and Seattle Seahawks. So it's the Seattle Ewoks on the t-shirt. And mine is a uh, is a Finding Nemo and Deadpool mixture where instead of it saying Finding Nemo, it says Finding Francis and Nemo is Deadpool. You put your own twist on it. You find a way to make it suit you. I think for the traditions you find that you don't like, that you don't want to continue, it's not that it's a reflection on the previous generations doing something wrong or bad. It's just a matter of, well, this isn't what works for me personally. Mm-hmm. True. And if you don't, if you don't like any traditions, make your own. Yeah, or or just do nothing. There, there are traditions of do nothing day. Mm-hmm. You don't have to eat turkey on Thanksgiving. You can have Chinese food. Seriously, it, for some people, depending on how they cook, it might be a better option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> Very true. It's the, I I like that our family has the, it used to be that we were expected to make homemade gifts for everyone, regardless of your level of talent. Granted, I am a more creative person personally. You know, I have, you know, I provide paintings and knitted stuff and embroidered and whatever handicraft things that my family is kind enough to accept as gifts. She Um, makes very thoughtful gifts. Thank you. Um, I have many paintings that I still keep to this day. Yes. That said, you know, I know that there are family members who do not have those talents and are kind enough to give me the supplies for those talents as a present. Yes, yes. And that it's very supportive in that way where our dad used to make handmade clocks. And oh, those those are cherished gifts. He and his father both made handmade clocks. Not that they did the clock works, not the mechanical gears parts, but but all the stuff around it, the, yeah, the clock they, face they and design and wood carving that were polished and had these beautiful designs. And our grandpa Schmid uh, also made these beautiful cedar chests that I seriously love. My cedar chest. My dad made me a bookshelf, which mm-hmm. is beautiful. So you know, woodworking of many varieties that was just gorgeous work we have an uncle who did leather work and uh, so many different talents and abilities I know for what was it one year you got how many bags of yarn oh yeah (laughs) I had enough to where it was filling up most of my closet so so again when you mentioned the nativity thing where there was like 30 family members that's a light date let's keep in mind number I am number five Lori's number two out of six kids raised all of my siblings are married or previously married and all have kids or stepkids. Plus, you also have to keep in mind there are aunts and uncles and cousins who will come over and their spouses and their kids. And, you know, sometimes you have relatives who will fly in to visit and others who drive hours away to come visit. So 30 is actually a small number. And when you think of the blended families of the yours, mine, and ours and... It, and they all get together over at a family member's house. And, and, you know, granted, most of our family members who do have a, own a home have modest homes. We're talking, you know, two or three bedroom homes. Right. That the, in the burbs that are not very big. <laughs> so, you know, modest homes that will be just packed with 
people. So many people. So many people. Um, and you'll be hugged by these people. That's the thing. They, they will all hug you whether you want to be hugged or not. The current generation is, is teaching their kids that you're the boss of your own body. You're allowed to say no. And your no will be respected. When I was growing up, that wasn't allowed. No, you had to hug your relative. Even if you're going... Who are you? Which, in a family of our size, is a reasonable question. I mean, Half the time is my question. <laughs> I, I've made the excuse a few times of, I'm getting over a cold. I oh, need some space. I can't tell you how many times as kids, we would fake a sneeze to not have to hug certain relatives. And, and just, you know, sneeze into our elbow, sneeze into the open air. Uh, we, we, we have <laughs> Depending brothers, on how much you wanted them to back up. We have brothers who would on purpose cough. And, and snort a little bit. Just like, no, I'm not hugging you. To be able to tell a kid now, you don't have to hug them. You can lift your chin and nod your head at them, acknowledge their existence. And for the kids who can't even do that, they're, they're way too shy, they're super uncomfortable, you don't even have to look at them. You have the ability to say, huh uh One of the things that I think is interesting about that is that you know, so many people have come out and said, well, you should be able to tell them to hug so-and-so. And it's, it's not about disrespecting the person getting the hug. It's about giving someone a choice and learning how to say no. It's amazing how difficult that can be if you're not taught how to say no. If instead you're taught that you always have to allow people to hug you if you don't want to be hugged. That you are not given that permission to say no. It's a hard thing then to learn how to say no to someone. And to know that you can set up appropriate boundaries. Which you would think that's something we would just automatically know. But for a lot of people, including myself, it's something I had to learn. Well, just like with our traditions, to say, I have boundaries on my traditions. There are certain things that I'm going to say, no, this no longer serves me. I'm not sure it ever did in some cases. <laughs> but But to say... No, we're, we're, we're not doing this. And to talk about it as a family and to be open and honest about it. And there's times where we're not all unanimous on it. For example, I really don't want a live Christmas tree. I'm outvoted. Every single year I am outvoted. My kids have actually chipped in their own money to say, no, 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 we're getting a real Christmas tree. I said I didn't care if we had a Christmas tree or not, so... Right, versus the ones who said, we're having a Christmas tree and it's going to be a live tree. And it's not even so much the tree itself as it is that whole experience of you're going to the farm, you're going to pet a llama, you're getting hot cocoa, you're riding in a hayride. There's there's a whole thing to do about getting a tree that sometimes isn't even about the tree itself. Mm. No, it's about this is the thing we do. And to have them say, tradition, this, this is what we do. <laughs> like Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> right. <laughs> Versus... Mom, you always pick the world's worst fake Christmas tree. Did you get this from the clearance bin? <laughs> Did no one else want this tree? Charlie Brown had a better tree than this. What, what are you doing? Trees shouldn't have holes. And just, you know... It, and it shouldn't be mostly holy. I, just, no pun intended with the religious... No, 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 no there was very pun intended. Right yeah. Well, in the times where I'm like, and I want a train to go around the bottom of the tree, and they're like, could you please spend enough money on a tree this time, that, on, on the train this time, that it doesn't fall apart, that, that, you know... Or you don't try to glue it to the center of the tree, so you have... <laughs> in my head, it sounded like a good idea. You put the train tracks around the entire tree in the middle. The train the weighed more tracks. than the track. 
I, I got this kit that would allow you to put the train in the middle of the tree and it would go around the circle. You used foam spray to put it together. <laughs> the, the triple expanding foam spray be, because my fake tree was such an awful fake tree. And when the foam spray didn't work, you tried using fake snow. I tried lots of things. I, I really wanted it to work. Super see, glue could work very well. See, this is a thing where you may look at it and you go, you know what? This is not my talent. This is not my ability. It's a lovely tradition, but it is not for me. It's where my kids had to say, Mom, j j just accept it. This did not work. It did not. Stop. Stop already. When the tree falls down three times in one hour, I think we've had enough of the train. Well, well just like, there are things we discussed before doing it and said, oh, that's not going to be a good thing. Like, some people will take fake birds and decorate their tree with these little styrofoam or felt birds with real feathers attached. I have a cat. That's a bad idea. Oh, the carnage. <laughs> That's just creepy. Like, I don't need some bird looking at me while I'm walking around my house grabbing things. Well, and, and there's one we saw at a store that, oh, it just made me giggle thinking about it. Every time you tapped this fake bird, it'd make a little sound. Do people not own animals? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if anyone owns a cat or even certain dogs. Cat, I, a ferret, a dog, a mouse. Children. Because, <laughs> right. you know... I don't think that's going to last long. Well, it's one of those where we are the family that hits that one aisle in the store and we press all the buttons. Yes, yeah. that way the aisle is like shaking and moving with all the things that make noise and move. Yes. We do that. And we're not the kind that hits the button and runs to the next aisle. No, we just stand there. No, it was me. I did it and I'm going to push it again. Any other fun traditions you would like to discuss that you don't do anymore? It's like that when we do a family potluck where you will have such a wide variety especially with our mixed family we, oh, we have yeah. a lot of stuff going on there are times where we just give up on asking what the food is if it smells good you try it if if, if it smells weird don't bother leave it for someone else mm. and you know and that's you not always the case sometimes things might smell a little funky and then you try it and you're like oh that was amazing i mean it might smell uh, weird but if it looks delicious you might as well try it well but there's things like bean dip where you look at it and go that doesn't look good and then you taste it with fritos and go actually you taste it with the chip period you don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you just kind of learn as you go along and decide what's going to work what's not going to work and hopefully people respect those boundaries if they don't you just realize maybe you won't be over during that time well there's certain holidays that we're not going to spend with family members because we don't share in that tradition and and it's not to be judgmental or mean or rude it's just because that's their belief system they they can light the candles and sing the songs and eat the foods and and have a great old time and we'll say yeah i'm tired i'm gonna go home i'm gonna go to bed i have no interest in staying up really late on on new year's eve i i'll greet the new year well rested thank you you know everybody has their own thing you know it depends on what I what my options are you know sometimes I like to go out on New Year's Eve sometimes I don't but again it's I like the idea that we have options now that mm -hmm. traditions are not a requirement it, and, it's and a matter of what works for you what doesn't work for you you have a choice if you want to continue a tradition great go for it mm -hmm. you can have your own modern tradition yeah well, and sometimes you learn about a place that you might never visit. There are countries that have a tradition of giving out books as gifts on certain holidays. And then the tradition is to sit around just reading those books throughout the rest of the day. 
well, we may not ever visit that place, in part because it's cold and I don't like cold. <laughs> the, yeah. The idea of, that's a good idea. I want to bring that into my life. That's a good thing. Absolutely. And I think, again, it's when someone decides to reject a tradition, sometimes older generations will take offense, feeling as though they personally are being rejected. And it's not a reflection on them. It's a matter of, you know, things change, people change, and embracing others as much as your own history, I think, is a good reflection on them. To say, you raised me to have an open mind and accept others. Right. That, you know, I'm not rejecting you as much as it is. I'm honoring the character I have from you. Well, and to have them be honest with you as well to say aren't there traditions you had as a kid that you didn't continue when you had us for example some members of my family would open Christmas presents at midnight others wouldn't do it till eight o'clock in the morning others when they got around to it and to say well why don't you do it at midnight anymore because we got little kids and we're tired and because it'll still be Christmas at 8 a.m and and it's just a matter of you find what works for you and to say this this isn't about me disrespecting my family and to say I know you did the same too I know you picked a few traditions and put your own twist on it I know there's things that you let go of and new things you brought in every generation does that and to not acknowledge that is untruthful right you know you, you light the menorah we get a tree it's you know doesn't matter as long as people are being respectful people are doing something positive they feel good about it the food tastes good everyone's happy then and I think that really is what it comes down to with traditions it's a matter of being respectful of others and then finding what works for you we're all grown people and we have different backgrounds and different belief systems and different ways of how we are and to just say you're all welcome at the table Next up, I sit down with a dear friend of mine. Meg Cowie is British born and raised and has a wealth of cultural information. Ever wonder exactly what the 12 days of Christmas are? Wonder no more as Meg explains when the 12 days start and end, along with Boxing Day and other holiday festivities. The 12 days of Christmas. Everybody knows the song, obviously. What are the 12 days of Christmas? Okay, the 12 days of Christmas are Christmas Day is day one, and the 12th day is Epiphany, when the kings arrived to see the infant Jesus, and the span of those days is 12 days, and those 12 days are actually all the Feast of Christmas. So that's the Epiphany is January 6th. It is. Everyone thinks that the 12 days of Christmas are leading up to Christmas and Christmas Day is the last one. Yeah, no, that's that's incorrect. The uh, The period leading up uh, is, uh, strictly speaking, Advent when you are in preparation. You know, and my goodness, it is preparation. And then Christmas Day is the start of the feasting period. It's not unusual anywhere in Europe to have a 10 or 12 day celebration roundabout now because it's dark and it's miserable and you might just as well stay home with a big fire. Speaking of fire, talk about the Yule Log. The Yule Log is actually a 
giant, literally a log um, that gets brought in and set up, set fire to on Christmas Eve. And it's supposed to burn for the 12 days so that nobody has to go out in the snow and get more wood. There's the Feast of uh, St. Stephen, which in Britain we call Boxing Day. He was the first Christian martyr, apparently. Um, so he gets the very first day after, after Jesus was born. And this is a confused attempt for the Christian church to slam 30 years of life into 12 months of what happened in the world. When they talk about the, the, the song Good King Wenceslas on the Feast of Stephen, yeah. um, that's what they're talking that's, about, yes, Boxing Day? it is. Oh, what happens on Boxing Day in England? Several things. Um, if you go back far enough, that is when the poor boxes in the church were opened and uh, the largesse that had been placed in there over the year was uh, divided out amongst the poor of the parish. That's one thing historically. Later on, when you're coming into 19th century and what we kind of think of as Downton Abbey, but a bit earlier than that, Boxing Day was the day that the servants had their feasts and frequently that's when they came up into the hall to be given a Christmas gift from the masters. Said gift being possibly new livery for the following year. That's nice. And some in some of the big houses, they actually had a servants' hall dance and the masters were invited and the masters were the visitors and the masters had to sit quietly and behave themselves. That varied from, from region to region. It wasn't a uniform thing. Is something specific supposed to happen on each day? No. Well, New Year is in there as well, of course. And traditionally, New Year is, um, is not paid much attention to in England, although it's a big deal in Scotland. It has become more homogenized over the years, even like my short lifetime, so that um, New Year's becomes as much merrymaking as Christmas. And why is it a big deal in Scotland? What happens in Scotland? I have no idea, but apparently, historically, they didn't pay so much attention to Christmas other than as a religious holiday, but New Year was the feasting day. So that's when they would they have Hogmanay, they say in the New Year, they bring out the lights, they first foot um, around, which means they visit around the houses, bringing or receiving joy and cheer wherever they go. And that, that's a whole other thing, actually. That's very, very sweet. Someone has to first foot over your door. And if it is a male and they bring whiskey and coal, then you're going to have a very good year. And don't they have to be dark haired? Uh, yes, in some regions, they insist on it being a dark haired male. Is there a reason for that or no one knows? It's lost in the mist of time. Uh, probably, probably. Um, it's a, a Celt come Viking thing. Blonde heads or redheads were viewed with suspicion. <laughs> <laughs> redheads causing trouble since the year dot. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, so what happens on Epiphany? I know that in modern times, sometimes people don't take their Christmas trees down until 
January mm-hmm. 6th because they call that the little Christmas. Yeah, it is. Um, again, the decorations are supposed to stay up for those 12 days. So you take the decorations down on the 6th. It's considered bad luck to leave them up beyond that time. Sensitive parents will make sure that their children are tucked up in bed before they dismantle the holiday tree. Yeah, Twelfth Night is is the last day of revelling, so it tends to be pretty wind-downy, except, of course, France. Again, it's a big deal, which has translated over here um, in New Orleans. They have King Day and their King Cake with their baby Jesus inside, which I am pretty sure in the midst of time was the bean that had to be caught, found by somebody who was the king for a day and then was the blood sacrifice the next morning. Um, that's how come they got to be feasted for the whole day. And it's it's all kind of in there somewhere. This is all the stuff that the colonists brought with them. Hang on for a second. Talk about this blood sacrifice thing. It is thought that, um, and this is anecdotal, but there was, and it's all tied in with the Father Christmas and the Santa Claus and the St. Nicholas mythos, but it's much older than that, that there would be the need for a blood sacrifice to bring the sun back, which happens round about that time. You start noticing that the sun is coming back. Um, so a sacrifice must be made so that the sun comes up. There are some historical elements of making a cake. It's uh, the equivalent of drawing the short straw. They make a cake. It has a bean or a pebble in it. If you get the bean or the pebble, you're it. Or sometimes they will find someone from another village and just kill them off. But the blood sacrifice will be made. So this is a human sacrifice. Okay. Yes. But we now still have Christmas puddings in which we now place... We used to place tokens in the Christmas pudding and you would get the Christmas pudding and your the token that you have would tell your fortune for the year. So um, if you've got a nail, um, well, that was bad news because that's a coffin, but in foretolding death in the family or something like that. That transmogrified into um, a little silver coin baked into the Christmas pudding so that if you were lucky, you were the one who got the sixpence. So, you know, these things transmogrify and we forget the origins over the years. But um, it's fascinating to me because it goes back such a long way. What is your favorite tradition? The food. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For me. It's about making the holiday food and sharing it and using recipes that certainly are hundreds of years old and um, nod towards a past that, you know, we don't have any idea of how this started. I do like decorating the tree. I do not have a real tree. I gave up buying real trees the year one, the year my then infant son decided to eat it. Um, so we don't do those anymore. <laughs> Usually it's the cat or the dog. Yeah, we didn't have a dog, but yeah, just sat there eating the pine needles. Oh my goodness. With uh, the inevitable results. So we, we, <laughs> we gave up on that. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the entire 
Christmas season. Remember that you can have a Christmas party. You can have a pre-Christmas party, and that's wonderful. But you can actually have a Christmas party and say it's a Christmas party any time between Christmas Day and the 6th of January. But I will also say I love that for many Americans, the Christmas feasting and the family gathering happens Christmas Eve, which leaves Christmas Day open for relaxation and visiting and present opening. Contributor Darka Dusty is back, sharing a story about making borscht soup and the Ukrainian tradition surrounding it. Here's Darka. For this first-generation Ukrainian, there is nothing quite like a bowl of steaming hot borscht to give me a hug from the inside on a cold day and revitalize my winter-worn spirit. The main ingredient in borscht is the beetroot, but that's just the beginning. Its supernatural alchemy lies well beyond the red color and its earthy essence. The fact that there are so many spellings for this Eastern European dish attests to just how many cultures claim it as their own ethnic cuisine. Ukrainians, of which I am one, Poles, Russians, and Jews, all have distinct varieties. The fact is, there is not one single quintessential borscht recipe, but thousands. Some say there are as many varieties of borscht as there are those who make it. With the holiday season upon us, it seems apropos to focus on one very specific version, a Ukrainian vegetarian Christmas borscht, which is sometimes referred to as a sipping borscht. It is a pristine consomme, a pure elixir with seemingly endless magical properties. From its deepest red hue to the robust aroma, Having a bowl of borscht is like being transported in time to some quaint Carpathian hamlet. One has visions of wrinkled hands carefully handling each beat, peeling away the skin. You can almost hear an old village woman humming an ancient melody as she creates this ancestral fusion of flavors, which she has done hundreds of times before. The songs as well as borscht recipes have been passed down from mothers to daughters for generations. Ukrainian folklore says that if you add too much salt to your borscht, you may fall in love quickly. So be careful who you serve it to. <laughs> no two families make their borscht the same way. Some like it hearty, akin to minestrone. Some like it full of shredded beets and heaps of sour cream, which turns it the most amazing shade of pink. But the real magic is in its seasoning. Without the right seasoning, you might as well have a glass of beet juice. Vinegar, mushroom essence, red wine, garlic, salt, pepper, sugar, lemon juice, and even ketchup may all find their way into a pot of rustic borscht. As I think to many Ukrainian Eve, uh, Ukrainian Christmas Eve dinners with my family, I always remember a friendly controversy um, 
to determine just the right flavor of the borscht that my mom was making. It's as if every single family member suddenly became an expert and the seasoning process took on this competitive, almost contentious vibe. The cooking of the borscht would start, would start innocently enough. We would add all the ingredients, uh, pre-boiled beets. We would add mushroom stock. Uh, the mushroom stock it was usually made from dried mushrooms. Many times we would have them straight uh, from the forests of western Ukraine. We'd add all of our various spices and seasonings. And then everyone in the family would take a sip of the borscht over and over again to make sure that the seasoning was just right. Suddenly, everyone, including cousins, uncles, aunts, and even guests, would find their way into the kitchen to surround the stove, taking in giant spoonfuls, followed by very pointed opinions. I believe the phrase, too many chefs spoil the broth, originated in a Ukrainian household. It would be a veritable palate power play that would take place. And a consensus might never be reached. Some years, the pepper would destroy the borscht absolutely and entirely, although we would eat it anyway. Sometimes it would be as perfect as it gets, and you'd close your eyes, and suddenly your heart would be transported through hundreds of years of history via the, t the Beats time machine. You always knew you were eating something very special and ancient. A traditional Ukrainian Christmas Eve dinner consists of, wait for it, 12 courses. That's 12. <laughs> and the borscht is just one of them. <clears throat> it is usually paired with other things. For example, we have the borscht with something called ushka, which literally means ears. Ushka are a tiny tortellini-shaped dumpling filled with mushrooms, breadcrumbs, and seasoning. They float around in the magical, beautiful red borscht waiting to be devoured, and there are never enough of them to go around. Also during a Ukrainian Christmas Eve dinner, we prepare an empty place setting. And this empty place setting symbolizes our deceased, deceased family members. Uh, sometimes we might even put a few ushka into the bowl and maybe even some borscht. So that means we literally eat with the ghosts of our family. Among the souls who have passed on into the next life is my grandmother, my babcia, Maria, who taught me and my mother how to make borscht, and my sister, and my cousins. I always wonder if this year's borscht that I plan to make will meet with my babcia Maria's approval. If her spirit is indeed floating around somewhere above me, surely she'll figure out if I've over-seasoned it this time around. Now, if you decide to make borscht for yourself, seasoning it will be your biggest <clears throat> challenge and give you your biggest reward. Little by little, bit by bit, offer your pot of borscht tiny doses of tang, zip, gusto, until you're at the very edge of over-seasoning it. it. This will include a little bit of sour cream, a little bit of ketchup, a little bit of vinegar, a little bit of pepper, a little bit of salt, 
a little bit of cider vinegar, a little bit of ketchup. It just keeps going and going little by little. You get to the point where you've almost over seasoned it and then stop. It might take years of practice to perfect it, but just one attempt will convince you to embrace borscht into your own life and create your very own version. A bit of warning, when you make borscht, your kitchen's going to look like a bloody crime scene, but that's part of the experience. The passion you may feel when you're making borscht will elevate this endeavor from mere cooking to a creative, historic culinary adventure. I'm going to give the recipe to this Christmas borscht on our website for this program, The Politics of Living, so you can find it there. If you'd like to be more connected to Ukrainian Christmas carols and other traditions, you can email me directly at darka.dusty at gmail, and I'll point you to some amazing links and songs that I grew up singing and other traditions. Anyway, happy holidays, happy borscht making, Merry Christmas, and was as we say in the Ukrainian tradition, Christos Rozhdaitya. Contributing producer Tavi Fashi Drake has a podcast called Peace, Love, and Soup with co-host Brian Delaney. As the winter season approaches, they share with us their holiday edition of their Did You Know segment, highlighting winter celebrations from a variety of listeners. Here's Did You Know Holiday Edition. Oh, do I have a campfire story for you. Tell me. In days of old, on Twelfth Night, villagers would wassail from orchard to orchard, drinking and singing to wake the apple trees and ask them for a good harvest the next autumn. Really? A wassail king and queen would lead the tune, and the queen, or, get this, the youngest boy known as the Tom Tit, what? would be lifted into the branches to hang sops, which are toasts soaked in wassail straight from the communal bowl, and they would offer that as a gift to the birds who are the good spirits of the trees. Cool. And sometimes people would even pour a bit of the wassail on the ground to show off the fruits grown from the past year. I love learning about the history of our soups. Brian, did you know that when we say, let's make a toast, it refers to the toast that you float on the wassail and the well wishes for the future. And the word soup has the same origin as the word sop. I did not know that. But speaking of did you know, joining us this month on a special edition of our monthly segment, we've assembled a few friends to share with us the holidays they celebrate during the fall and winter seasons. And today, with so many of us having multicultural households and not all practices being of a religious nature, a family mm. may even celebrate two, three, or more of these, some at the same time. So true. It's a big, beautiful, culturally mixed world out there. Let's sop up some peace, love, and happy holidays soup. Do you know the Hebrew word Hanukkah means dedication? The holiday is named for Jerusalem's holy temple rededication after the Maccabees overthrew the Greco-Syrians in order to reclaim their own culture and religious beliefs. Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of lights, is an eight-day celebration which one candle is lit each night on a special candelabra called a menorah. It commemorates the miracle that night long ago when there was only enough oil for a lamp to be lit for one day. But Jewish people believe that God kept it going for 
eight days as the temple was rededicated. Today, children play games, including spin the dreidel to win delicious gold chocolate coins. They also eat delicious latkes, potato pancakes cooked in oil to pay homage to the miracle of Hanukkah. Did you know Christmas is a religious and cultural holiday? celebrated by billions of people around the world. For Christians, it marks the birth of Jesus Christ and is preceded by the season of Advent, which is a period of waiting and getting ready for Jesus's birth. The Advent wreath, with one new candle lit each week, reminds Christians of the light of hope Jesus had brought to the world at his birth. Although the exact date Jesus was born is unknown, Christmas is celebrated in most of the world on December 25th. Over time, Christmas has evolved from a solely religious holiday to becoming a secular celebration. It is the night children believe Santa Claus brings gifts to nice children and coal to the naughty ones. It is a time for friends and family to gather together to feast and exchange gifts. Every culture that celebrates Christmas has special foods of the season from the southern Italian meal of seven fishes on Christmas Eve to the Swedish smorgasbord on Christmas Day. Other traditions include caroling, decorating homes with lights, Christmas trees, stockings by the fireplace, and mistletoe. Did you know that Kwanzaa is a seven-day celebration of African heritage and culture? It was created in 1966 by Dr. Maulana Karenga, a professor of Africana Studies at Cal State Long Beach. After the Watts riots in Los Angeles, Karenga was searching for a way to unite the African-American community. The name Kwanzaa comes from the Swahili phrase Matunda Ya Kwanzaa, which means first fruits of the harvest. Kwanzaa begins December 26th and ends January 1st. On each of the seven nights, friends and family gather and light one of the candles on the Kanara, then discuss one of the seven principles of Kwanzaa, unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and last, but certainly not least, earth. People also celebrate Kwanzaa with feasts, music, poetry, and dancing. Happy Kwanzaa! Did you know that in Germany on December 6th, they celebrate St. Nicholas Day? St. Nicholas was a kind bishop loved by all who died on this date. He was well known for his gift-giving and working with the poor. On the evening of December 5th, children in Germany put a boot called a Nikolaus Stiefel outside their front door. Overnight, St. Nicholas, checking his golden book for each child's record, fills boots with gifts and sweets if the child was good. But if they were not, he places a stick, or in German, eine Rute, in their boots instead. And in Austria, Bavaria, and Eastern Europe, St. Nicholas is accompanied by Krampus, represented as a demonic beast-like creature, with roots in Germanic folklore. Krampus is thought to punish children during the Yule season who had misbehaved and to capture particularly naughty ones in his sack and carry them away to his lair. December 5th is Krampus night or Krampusnacht. Traditionally, young men dress up as the Krampus during the first week of December and roam the streets frightening children with rusty chains and bells. Winter solstice is the longest night of the year. The lighting of bonfires invites the sun to return in what was once the ancient Druidic holiday called Yule, or sometimes Yuletide. 
It has its origins in the Germanic and Nordic peoples of what is now Scandinavia, and slowly filtered to England, the British Isles, and elsewhere, including the Pacific Northwest. This pagan holiday gave us the Yule Log. It is commonly celebrated with food and drink, potlucks, handmade gifts, and decorations and ceremonies that honor nature. Some people treat it as a 12-day celebration beginning on December 21st, the day of winter solstice. Uh, in my background, where we have indigenous and Afro as, as well as Germanic, there's a big to-do about waiting for the sun to rise, knowing that from this point forward, things are going to get a little bit lighter and that all the work and the effort of making it through the dark of night, whatever that means to you, and it's about reflection and reclaiming and remembering that you are somebody and your culture is somebody and being joyful about that. More information and links can be found on the Politics of Living page. And for more peace, love, and soup, please visit kboo.fm slash peace, love, and soup. Next up on the Politics of Living, it's the she Solution. It's a monthly biography of women past and present hosted by Kristen Thiel. Its title is inspired by Maria Teresa Hart's article, she and the Fight Against the Token Girl, published June 16, 2016, in The Atlantic. Today, Kristen talks about one of the most groundbreaking Christmas songs and the women behind it. Here's Kristen Thiel. Santa baby, slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. This Christmas is the 10th anniversary of Eartha Kitt's death. A girl who was sent from the Carolina cotton fields to her aunts in Harlem started entertaining professionally as a teenager. First a dancer, then a nightclub singer, and finally an actor, including playing Catwoman on the 1960s TV version of Batman. Kitt had a booming career until the late 1960s when she publicly criticized the Vietnam War on a visit to the White House with First Lady Johnson. That Kit died on Christmas Day is poignant because one of her biggest lasting legacies is being the singer of Santa Baby. Until its release in 1953, Christmas songs were religious, sweet, or sung from the perspective of a child. By contrast, the 26-year-old Kit pled her case to a man she addressed as Santa Baby, Santa Honey, Santa Cutie. She mused on how good she'd been all year, making her deserving of gifts. She had abstained from so much fun, like kissing lots of fellas. She purred her Christmas list of convertibles, yachts, a house, even a platinum mine. Very bold adult requests. In the lyrics, she teased that for her list, she, quote, forgot to mention one little thing, a ring. I don't mean on the phone. The song is sultry and in-your-face. It acknowledges that Christmas in the States had become commercial and celebrated the romance in the season. In fact, one of the co-writers of the song has said that it is about a woman telling the man she's having an affair with exactly what she wants. Santa Baby was co-written, under protest, by Phil Springer and Joan Javits. They'd been hired to write a Christmas song for Kit, but neither of them could picture the Broadway star, known for her powerful presence and sex appeal, singing a holiday song. 
Their brainstorming started with the title. Javits came up with that. In the cab to Springer's apartment where they would work, they alternated supplying ideas. Springer humming a growing melody and Javits building on the lyrics. When Springer hummed the first badum phrase and Javits said, for me, they may have known they had struck gold. That's certainly how it ended up. Springer told the Los Angeles Times, quote, that little dadum made a lot of money for me over the years. He was the famous songwriter of the duo, duo and bought Javits' share of the song in the early 1980s. But Javits did the hard labor on the song. By Springer's own estimation, it took him just 10 minutes to write the tune. Javits polished the lyrics for three weeks. And she went on to write six other versions to fit the song into a variety of genres. The song was hugely successful in some markets and banned in others. But overall, the people wanted Santa Baby. Kit learned this well when in 1955 she recorded the song Nothing for Christmas, about being a, quote, respectable woman who tells her suitors her affection cannot be bought. Do you remember Nothing for Christmas? Yeah, you're not alone. Over the years, multiple people rewrote and re-recorded the song. In 1987, Madonna was one of those, but out of the noise, her version flew, bringing back the original's interpretation. The song had gotten muddied, but Madonna reminded people of what it was meant to be. And, Springer said, he couldn't have chosen a better ambassador. The singer already recorded Material Girl, which had similar themes. And by the late 1980s, society was more willing to accept a woman being open about her needs and wants. Springer told the LA Times, quote, Now, it was just fun instead of sacrilege. In the lyrics of this song that's been a hit for more than half a century, it's all Santa Baby this and Santa Cutie that. But behind its popularity swells the strength of three women, one wielding a pen, and to the power of performance. I'm your host, Kristen Thiel, and I'll be back next month. And that brings us to the end of this episode of The Politics of Living. Thanks to our guests and our contributors, Lori Schmid, Jonah Michael Schmid, Meg Cowie, Rochelle Schmid, Tavi Fashi Drake, Darka Dusty, and Kristen Thiel. Also, thanks to our web manager, Denise Kowalczyk. Visit kboo.fm and search for The Politics of Living, Episode 22, to find links about today's topics and guests. All feedback, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to tpol at kboo.org. That's tpol at kboo.org. If you'd like to be a guest or a contributor on The Politics of Living, please email tpol at kboo.org. We're ending today with a song performed by contributor Deborah Giannini. It's entitled Song of the Magi, and it's written by Aeneas Mitchell. Thanks for listening to The Politics of Living. I'm Vicki Mazzone. I'm Deborah Giannini. I'm presenting the Song Bite for this December program. Song of the Magi by Aeneas Mitchell. When we came, we came through the cold, we came bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And there were trumpets playing, there were angels looking down on a West Bank town. 
he so loved the world. Wore we then our warmest cloaks, wore we then our walk-in shoes, open wide the city gates, and let us Born in a cattle pen, that child was born on a killing floor. Still no crying he makes, still as the air is he, lying there prayerfully, just waiting for the war. Welcome home, my child. Your home, it's a checkpoint now, it's a border town. Welcome to the brawl. Life ain't fair, my child. Put your hands up in the air, my child. Slowly now, up against the wall. Where we now our warmest coats. Where we now our walking shoes. Open wide the gates of hope. And let us through When we came We came through the cold We came bearing gifts of gold And frankincense and myrrh And there were shepherds playing And the lions Playing with the lambs In a West Bank town He so loved the world 